to 1.37 p.m.'s Live from the Bar Cart. A look into the style, culture, strength, and grind of the modern-day man. Welcome back to Live from the Bar Cart, a look at pop culture, news, style, and business through the lens of entrepreneurship. Yeah, hey guys, we've got a great lineup on today's show. I talked to Eugene Ram. He's an entrepreneur and wellness expert, and we chopped it up about how he builds businesses based on his passion for hospitality and fitness. So he has uh, he's a partner in the Catch Hospitality Group, um, which uh, owns the very popular uh, restaurant slash nightclub here uh, called Catch. And he's also a partner in Rumble, which is a boxing-inspired group fitness concept. That sounds great. Let's take a listen. Today, I have with me Eugene Rim, who's a co-owner of Catch Hospitality Group and Rumble Boxing, based in New York City. Eugene, how's it going? Feeling good. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks for making time for us. We definitely appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, thanks for coming, but also thanks for being the first uh guest that is having a sip of Belvedere vodka yes, with me. why so not, right? Thank you. <laughs> I, I am in the restaurant business. We, we do sell mm-hmm. a fair amount of booze, so. Um, yeah, truly taking advantage of the bar cart and the yes. life on the bar cart. <laughs> so you um, are, like I said, you, you're a co-owner in Catch Hospitality Group, which uh, owns uh, several locations mm-hmm. for the Catch Seafood uh, franchise but also um, Lexington Brass. Yeah. And you're also co-owner in Rumble Boxing. Correct. Which is uh, like a, a fitness it's a, studio. It's a boxing-inspired group fitness concept. Right, right. So let's start with the restaurant business. How did you get into into that whole industry? I got into the restaurant business through the nightclub business. I got into the nightclub business through the PR business. Hmm. I got into the PR business through the mailroom. And uh, that was the... The the history before that was was bartending in college, mm-hmm. um, and that was really the progression. So I, I was a I was bartending in college, I was enjoying the money, mm-hmm. and in quite quite honestly, also enjoying the attention. Um, I never understood being one of four hundred on one side of the bar when you could be one of two mm-hmm. on the other side of the bar, and I never considered it really work because um, I didn't really enjoy going out unless there was a purpose, unless mm-hmm. there was business to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my first entry into that. I was a, a bar back for my, for my friend Danny, um, who later on I ended up working with. But um, after that, moved to New York, got a job in ad sales. Lasted, I, my, my mom reminded me that I only lasted six months <laughs> there. And the woman I worked with said, you know, you should do PR. I said, what's PR? She said, it's perfect for you. You don't really need to know anything and you talk a lot. Mm. <laughs> and um, and this funny thing called Google had just come out. I uh, Googled PR firms New York City. Bunch came up. I got up. I faxed my resume to a bunch of places, just random things. And at my lunch break, I went on a bunch of interviews. And uh, one firm had a didn't have an assistant position, mm-hmm. um, but they did have a, a spot in the mailroom. And I said, uh, I think it was... Um, I was making $24,000 a year plus overtime at the time, and oh. this job was twenty two grand. But I said, you know what? I, I think I'd rather think for a career than a job. Yeah. And I had, I had uh, flipped some houses in college, mm-hmm. um, bought some homes with a couple of friends. In and, college? In college, yeah. So we wow. took the bartending money. Yeah. This was during the like mortgage crisis, the first one. Mm-hmm. And you know they were basically giving you... 110% of the house's value in a mortgage. Oh. So a couple guys I went to college with, um, they dropped out of college and came in with a Lexus the next uh, month. And I said, what are you doing? They're like, mortgages. I go, what's a mortgage? They walked me through what it was. And that's where me and two friends from college came up with the idea. So when I had gotten to New York, we had sold one of those houses. So I had, you know, I think I, think I had made like um, $40,000, mm. which... I basically just took all that money and I said, I don't care how much the job is going to pay. I want, I want to figure out a career. So I just took that money we made from the houses and I lived off that, really, and uh, continued to bartend for, for three years afterwards. Wow. So what was, like, what was the first, uh, your first entry into being an entrepreneur? And what, what year was it? I mean, look, you know, I, I wasn't very good in school. Um, I wasn't necessarily the best athlete 
but I always wanted to work and I always wanted to make money. So when I was 12 years old, I wanted to find a stencil of the Air Jordan, you know, the the dunk and put it on t-shirts. Mm-hmm. So I would go to like the store, I would make the stencil, we would buy t-shirts for like $1.99 because we knew they were nineteen fifty mm-hmm. at the store. And we'd go in the basement and we tried to spray them. I mean, I, I wasn't very good at it by any means, but we're just trying to make a hustle. So I've always wanted to make money. My father worked um, flea markets mm-hmm. on the weekends and he would give me a piece of his table where if the table was like $50, he'd give me a sliver of it and I'd sell my baseball cards on that. So I always wanted to be find a way to make money. But I think as a grown-up, um, the homes were definitely the first time we took a chance on something. Um, and then I think in, in my, after moving to New York City, 2006, I was working for a, a big organization called Be Our Guest. So mm-hmm. to, to um, push forward into the true restaurant side of the business, be our guest owned 20 something restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, I was their director of promotions and I ran a club for them. But I was 25 years old, I had this really cool job and I got to spend a lot of time with the CEO and owner and he, he had a liking to me and he was super kind to let me join him on a bunch of meetings and someone offered me a nightclub below a restaurant that was opening right down the street from where I was and I went for it and so that was my first contract that was yeah. my first legal document that was the first time i ever had to raise money yeah. that was the first time i had to deal with building permits and partners yeah. and investors and I all think, that fun stuff and those are all the things right that uh entrepreneurs or even anybody who's thinking about being an entrepreneur it kind of makes them turn the other way <laughs> so how, how, how did you how did you like know where to go and who to ask well here's why you don't turn the other way because when you're young you're stupid mm-hmm. and stupid <laughs> is good sometimes because if you, you know, most people, when you say, I got an idea for a business and they, and they naysay it, right. They say it doesn't work. It's an easy thing to say. It's not going to work because they'd probably be right. No matter what, 98% of the time. Mm -hmm. So it's super easy to say why not to do something. It's very hard to say why to do something. So when you're young, you just don't know and you just go. And some of it, you can call it God, you can call it luck, you could call it blind faith, you can call it everything lining up, but if I really knew how hard it would be to open up a nightclub, I don't know yeah. that I would have opened up a nightclub. Catch specifically, yeah. second floor, third floor, fourth floor, no ground floor presence, wow. small elevator, eight foot ceilings, 12,000 square feet. Wow. If I knew the revenue that we would have to do, mm-hmm to be successful there, yeah. no no person in their right <laughs> mind would ever do that. But we yeah. didn't have the knowledge of the P&L. We were just like, this is a dope spot. We like it. We can take it today. Yeah. Let's, just, let's just keep going. Yeah, so yeah. sometimes it's okay to be dumb mm-hmm. or, or not educated because that, that's that moment where you can take a chance and that's that opportunity where you could go against the grain of what is supposed to happen. What you're supposed to do is fail. Totally. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I use the word thirsty all the time. Yeah. You can't teach thirst. Now, yeah. look, I think this generation, specifically this generation, they overdo that sometimes where mm-hmm. they think it's okay to just ask anyone for everything at all times. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important. Any job I've ever had, I, I never go into a job and say, can you please hire me and pay me money mm-hmm. for my <laughs> education? That's sometimes ridiculous. However, if you walk into a job and say, hey, if you hire me, I will generate revenue. Yeah. I will add value. I will find a way to make your life easier. So it has to be mutually beneficial. This generation a little bit is too much on the super aggressive. Hey, we should meet up. You can do this for me. Yeah. You can do that for me. You can do this for me. Like the question really needs to switch right. when you, you meet someone. What can I offer yeah. for you? That's really the question that young people entrepreneurs need to be asking when they meet someone. And yes, sometimes you do just need a mentor. Yeah. But mentors want to mentor. It's yeah. important for them. So there is a value even in that. So yeah. I think it has to have a real understanding of what you're asking for and is it a mutual thing. And I was also 23 when I picked up and moved from Mississippi and mm-hmm. like, you know, moved to New York without a job. And like, you know, my family told me I was crazy and they were mad at me for leaving the family, That's you right. know. But you, that to, to your point, like there are a million reasons you can think 
why not to do something? And they're usually right. Like yeah. that's the, that's why it's an easy answer. Like yeah. nothing dope ever happened by doing the obvious. Yeah. Nothing dope ever happened by staying in your hometown. Yeah. Nothing dope ever happened by just not doing anything. You know, m- my business partner Mark and myself, we all used to say like, well, what do you want to do tonight? You want to go to this thing? And we'd be like, well, guaranteed if we don't go to this thing and stay home, nothing will happen. Yeah. That is a fact. Yeah. If we do go, yeah. there is always that chance. So that was that. And by the way, that is certainly not my mentality now yeah, as yeah. a 40-year-old. I don't go to m- many things at all. But uh-huh. that's that 20-something mindset. Totally. And you really need to be in it. You need to be willing to give up those hangouts with your friends for the fourth time in the week. What do you have to talk about with your same friend for the third right. time in a week? Go do that other thing. Get out there. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned mentorship earlier. Did you have a mentor in the industry? You, you know, there there wasn't any one specific guy that, unfortunately or fortunately, actually, that gave me the whole, the whole show, right? You mm. know, um, there wasn't anyone who said, let me tell you how business is going to work, mm. son. Like that, excuse me, that never happened. But what I did was I was able to take a little bit yeah. from every person I ever worked with or for, consolidate all of it put it into a little package and then be like, you know what? I like this from you. Mm-hmm. I like that from you. I like this from you. I like that from you. And then really take it into myself. And that's really, to me, the best way to do it because there is no perfect person. Yeah. And there is no grander version of you which then you want to become. I, I mean, I, I think that's the key is that you take a little bit from everyone, but you got to make it your own. Yeah. At least for me, I've never seen anyone who's exactly like anyone else. They're yeah. all slightly different. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about Catch a little bit more. Right. So you were describing it a little earlier, just how big the space is. Mm-hmm. Catch is very well known in New York City. It's located in the meatpacking uh, the meatpacking district. Um, kind of set the scene for me. Like what what does Catch look like on the inside? Like what's like a typical like Saturday night look like at Catch? Sure. So look, it, it, it's a former. It's an office building. Mm-hmm. The ground floor is a Sephora. And there's a little side entrance on 13th Street with a simple door with a little sign above it. And it's a, it's a small hallway that leads to two small elevators. And you take it up and you have three floor options, two, three, or four. Two and three is your traditional restaurant, two floors, great bar, uh, main dining room, set of stairs going up to the third floor with an exposed kitchen mm-hmm. where you can see uh, the chefs cooking. Um, and then the fourth floor is an indoor-outdoor rooftop. And that rooftop starts at lunch, transitions into dinner, and then transitions further into nightlife. Mm. Um, and, and that's the entire space. It's, it, it's, it's super rustic. It's super timeless, classic. And then the rooftop is super clean and fresh. It's white. It's floral. Um, and then the outside is, is beautiful. The, the fourth floor really is supposed to feel like summer 365. Yeah, that's great. Not too long ago, it wasn't quite a year ago, but close to a year, that um, the billion-dollar buyer himself, Tillman uh, Fertitta, mm-hmm. uh, bought a 50% stake in Catch Hospitality Group, yes. correct? I see an opportunity to kind of get in the weeds a little bit yeah, from yeah. a business perspective with that, because I do think when there's an, a company acquisition or like a merger and things like that, all the headline basically conveys is money right Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) so the headline is billion dollar buyer buys you know uh, Mm -hmm. 50 percent stake in um in catch hospitality group right Right. but then you talk about some of the infrastructure and the uh the systems that come along with that acquisition right and how as a smaller company now you have access to some of those larger right uh, systems and, and learning. So can you kind of outline that a little bit for like, again, again, thinking of the younger entrepreneurs? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's really important for a young entrepreneur to remember when you sell a piece of your business or you partner into a business, it doesn't mean you just got paid. Right. It's actually usually quite the opposite. It means now you have a massive upside in the long run. It means you have a capital infusion to grow your business. Mm-hmm. But what, what it really is, is like, those headlines are meant to feel that way, but it, they're simply not true. That you have all these companies with, oh, we got valued at $100 million. We got valued at half a billion dollars. 
that's the sexy headline, but nobody ever did a study of how many of those valuations dropped to zero. Mm-hmm. And they do. Mm-hmm. They, they do a lot. You know, I, I've invested in companies that have had $1 billion valuations, and now the ice cube in that drink is worth more. Okay, so, so now I'm really curious about what company well, that, It was a company called Enjoy. It was an electronic cigarette. Uh-huh. It was on the rise. Big, big, big companies mm-hmm. followed it and invested in it. And it just died because regulatory government agencies said you cannot smoke this thing mm. in public. Or, and, and, they, and they crushed it. And yeah. that's what happens. You bet big, you can win big, yeah. but you can lose big. And by the way, that's another thing you need to tell anybody. When they invest in these things and these mm. big valuation things, it, my father always used to tell me, if you want to lend someone money, just assume you're giving it to them and you're mm. never getting it back. I have a friend who says that. So yeah. you have to look at some of these investments in the same way. But when you talk about people buying companies and selling companies and thinking that people get paid, it, we are in this for the long run and we are in this for the growth. So the first growth is Las Vegas, yeah. which is opening in November. Um, we obviously, we opened Los Angeles about a year and a half ago. And now, you know, Mark and I spend a lot of our time, whether we're traveling to whether we're traveling to London or we're looking in Midtown or we're looking in other markets to expand catch, that's where a lot of those resources go to. There is that big payday one day, yeah. but a large valuation means you have to do a large amount of work. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it doesn't really change anything other than provide for an amazing opportunity to do more. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, I mentioned earlier that you're also a partner in Rumble Boxing. Yes. So I'm really curious about what your days look like. It's a funny thing, right? There are certain guys I know, they're regimented. They get up at 6 in the morning. They have coffee six six ten. They kiss their wife at 6.20. They're, they're in the gym at 6.30. They work out till 7.30. They're at this meeting, and then they have someone with them all day long as they, as they barrel through 12 hours of 30-minute intervals, right? And that is a style and I'm sure it works for certain people, that's not my thing. My mm-hmm. thing is to wake up and just do what I love. So I'm super blessed that the two things, the two businesses that I'm involved with involve two things that are very important to me, and that's food <laughs> and then fitness. Yeah. Um, and what, what's it mostly involved is people, right? Mm-hmm. So I spend my entire day dealing with people with challenges that they may have, things that they need to be better at, things that I would like to convey to them. I spend my entire day communicating and creating experiences. Mm-hmm. So, no, I, I mean, I want to tell you I'm sleep deprived. I want to tell you that, you know, you, know you, don't, you don't understand how hard it is. I don't think I'm working. Hmm. I think I'm just living. And I've always thought that way from the bartender where I didn't think I was working yeah. when I was on the other end of that bar. The, the guys on the other side of that bar always were like, can't believe you have to work tonight. We should just want to go out. I would look at them as like, can't believe you're just going to go out yeah. <laughs> and spend money and just stand there. Yeah, you feel like I'm hours. having fun. So. I'm having fun. Yeah. So I really, and look, I'm 40 now. I've put in 20 years. This is where I'm at today. By no means was that my 20s. Mm-hmm. It was It was a grind and it was four or five hours of sleep and it was the full-time day job, run home, try to get to the gym, then go back out at night and really try to like get into clubs that you, you really couldn't get into and didn't have even the budget to like yeah. wear the gear that you should to go to those type of places. So I would love to tell you that it's so hard and you don't understand, but I'm having the absolute best time of my life right mm-hmm. now. It's also real easy to enjoy yourself when you're, when you're doing well. Yeah. You know, both businesses are are thriving right now. And that hasn't always been the case. But the key, I think, to success is finding the joy in when times aren't good. Yeah. What was what were some of the the darker times? If you can. Yeah. Give, I mean, absolutely. Give an example. I, mean, look, I, I, I could sum it up real quick. There was a time where we had 15 places on our signature. Right. It was really about the signature, the email signature, like catch here, catch there, this place, that place, this place, this club, this city, that city, right? And then 12 months later, we were down to three. Mm. So I want to bring back the word stupidity (laughs) because I think it's important, right? That same youthful stupidity 
that or fearlessness mm -hmm. where you don't know what you're walking into, um, which is super valuable when you're starting out, is also the thing you must move out of as you grow. Yeah. And I really compare it to driving a car, right? If you're driving a car at 35 miles an hour, you can put your hand up, I can talk to the person, I can text, I can change the radio station. So when you're driving slow, you can do that, your first place, your second place. Mm -hmm. When you have 14, 15 places going, it's like driving 110 miles on the highway, and yeah. it's two hands on the wheel, yeah. you're looking straight, and if you jerk it for one second, you're not like touching the divider yeah. and having a little fender bender. You're flipping over and you're dying. Yeah. And that's what happens when you don't pay attention as your business is moving really, really fast. So the inability to adjust and develop as a businessman in our early careers created massive challenges and loss of properties. So we had to close a property in Miami. We had to close a property in New York. We had to close a property in Atlantic City. And in Atlantic City, it was a, a $2.5 billion casino where we were the mega nightclub in it, oh. and we were super profitable. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, the most unheard thing ever happened. They shut down a $2.4 billion casino two years into its operation. Because so we had to close our, our nightclub there. So that really... if you're... Why? Why? Because yeah. they thought it was important to have yoga classes and no smoking and avoid all the principles of what a casino needed to be. Wow. We didn't run the casino. It wasn't our, it wasn't our business. But okay. my point is things, things shifted. But yeah. in the long run, getting out of the traditional nightclub business when those kind of clubs started to fail, yeah. that failure was probably the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. Now, again, real easy to say mm -hmm. here <laughs> after the fact when everything's mm -hmm. great. But you have to remember that as a young entrepreneur, when you're going through these things, they're educations. And you're like, all right, I'm going to learn this. The only thing you can control, I tell this to a lot of the people I work with, when someone else, something is happening bad and it's not in your control. Like if you're being rude to me, yeah. I may not be able to control your rudeness, yeah. but I may, the only thing I can control is how I react. Right. So the only that's thing a that you can lesson to learn. That's too. right. Yeah. But a great and important one and a simple one, by the way. Yeah. So when something terrible is happening, the only control you really have is how you're going to handle it. And that really creates the grit in how you develop and get better. And that that's why I think it's important. So I know that uh, Catch uh, is expanding to new locations. Mm -hmm. You mentioned one earlier. Um, you've you've gone from the standalone NYC flagship. Uh, to LA, Dubai, Playa del Carmen, a um, couple more this fall, I think. Uh, how different are the new restaurants from the flagship? And how do you kind of adjust? They're the not new... different. They're no, exactly, exact same? They're exactly the same. So you it's don't the adjust same... the menu? No, that's some nonsense that people say to get press on. Okay. <laughs> we, we have... <laughs> We have great food. I don't know anybody in New York, L.A., or Los Angeles that eats any differently. Um, and we have, you know, 70-plus items on our menu. So, quite honestly, what, what, what we have in every city will work for anyone. I mean, like it's, just, it's, it's amazing food, and I don't yeah. think there's something for everybody in New York, L.A., Vegas, Playa. Uh, what, what we're talking about is, like, literally 2% of the menu. And most of the time, it's just because you can't get a specific ingredient yeah. in a specific city. But other than that, we we know who we are. We don't yeah. apologize for who we are. We stay authentic to ourselves. And that's how I think a business today will stay successful. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks so much, Eugene, for making time for us. Appreciate it. Live from the bar cart. Um, and you have to promise me that next time you know that Kylie Minogue is coming to uh, the catch, you'll like absolutely so shoot me a text. I can we'll, like run we'll over. do. I'm sure she will be very. I am on to the west you. side, so I can just like take the sea straight down. Deal. Like I'm there. All right. Um, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. That was a great conversation, JJ. Uh, a lot of good takeaways for anyone to you know go home and absorb right there uh he has a lot going on and he seems to balance it all pretty seamlessly make sure you stop by catch and also sign up for some classes at rumble if you need to get that gym body back but you got a chance to sit down with simon doonan what did you guys talk about you know simon doonan is a fashion luminary who just released a book about his two favorite passions mm -hmm. soccer and fashion 
football and fashion, as some people would call it. I didn't know he was into soccer. Yeah, he's been into soccer since he was young in the 60s. So it's cool that, you know, someone who's such a luminary in fashion, who is known as uh, the world's most famous window dresser for his work <laughs> he's done as the creative ambassador at Barney's, mm-hmm. um, kind of take that passion and pair it with his other passion that a lot of people don't know about he's into. Um, And the cover of the book is actually really cool. He has a soccer cleat rested on top of a disco ball. Simon Dune, and welcome to 1.37 p.m.'s Live from the Bar Cart. Thank you for having me. My name is Brian Anthony Hernandez, and I'm your host today. And you, of course, are the creative ambassador of Barney's and also a fashion luminary who's been in the industry for four decades. And a lot of people know you as the world's most famous window dresser. How did you get that nickname? Um, well, I, you know, left college in like the 70s or maybe it was the 60s. No, early 70s. And I got a horrible job in a factory. And then I thought, I'm going to get into retail. It might be less money. But so I got a job in a local department store. And then I saw the window people installing windows, having fun, laughing, joking, always busy, being creative, being crafty. And I thought I could do that. Because it's just like a glorified version of tidying up. You know, I can do that. So um, I, long story short, I got into window dressing in the early 70s. And um, I did it until very recently. In 2010 probably was my last window. So that's a lot of windows. And it was, it was a great career for me. Retail, windows, don't underestimate retail. It was a great career for me and opened the door for lots of other things. And one of those other things is you being an author. Uh, We actually have your latest book with us right now. It's called Soccer Style, The Magic and Madness. And for the people who are listening, there is a soccer cleat rested on a disco ball. Uh, um, The release of this book coincided with the World Cup. Was that your strategy all along? And what can soccer fans and fashion folks get out of this book? Well, I was on that show, NBC show, Men in Blazers. I was a guest to be on Men in Blazers with Raj and Devo, the sweetest guys on earth. And they had me on to talk about fashion accessories. It was around the time that footballers were all really, you know, mincing into the changing room with a little Louis Vuitton wash bag (laughs) under their arm or a Gucci this or a um, Hermes that. And we talked about this new sort of, these new label kings, these guys who are obsessed with designer clothes. And um, they said to me after the podcast, oh, you you should write a book about this because you're the only person on earth with these overlapping interests of soccer and style. So being an obedient type person, I wrote up a book proposal and got a book deal. Four years later, World Cup, da-da-da-da-da. So I started this project right after the last World Cup. And so, yeah, it was the publisher, Lawrence King. Um, We did strategize it so it would come out around the World Cup. That's amazing. I think one of my favorite parts of the book, other than, you know, the written words and the photographs, is what you decided to highlight on the back, which says, the unapologetic flamboyance of the star players is now an established part of soccer culture. And I love that you highlight that because there's definitely been an evolution on the field and off the field with these men being more um, confident in their their style. Um, is that also a reflection in just men in general nowadays? Well, I think the first thing you have to talk, talk about is money. Mm-hmm. You know, when a young guy who's 18, 19 suddenly starts making 300,000 pounds a week, dollars, whatever, what's he going to do with it? And, you know, um, a lot of these young guys, they're impulsive, very young they love to buy a Ferrari, a Lamborghini, um, Saint Laurent, Balmain, Balenciaga, or designer clothes. And um, the histories of these guys, as they made more money, goes back to the 1960s. You know, when I was a teenager, um, they raised the wage cap for footballers because footballers used to make no money. Footballer was not about money. By football, I mean soccer, of course. Mm-hmm. And in England, they, their wage cap, leveled off the salaries at like, I don't know, eight pounds, maybe even less, someone doing it for nothing. Suddenly the wage caps lifted and these guys are making a lot of money and this coincided with the swinging 60s. So from that time, 
it was this spectacle unfurled that I was always riveted by because I it was interested in football and in it being an English being an English person you grow up around it but suddenly there was as also my other interest fashion was folded into there and all these players Georgie Best Mike Summerby and they all started dressing up opening boutiques wearing flash clothes and I loved all that I thought it was very life affirming and who are some of those you mentioned some of the people from the past who are some of the players currently especially in this world cup that are impressing you right now well, the thing you've got to do when you look at the players and you're talking about their style is there's different there's different tribes, different squads. So you've got a player like Harry Kane, who's very classic. He's not interested in wearing avant-garde clothes. So he's like that. He's what I call a good taste ambassador. Um, then you have Neymar, Danny Alves, Firmino, Pogba. And these guys are avant-garde. They love it. They don't care what people think. They love to experiment with their appearance. You know, it's creative expression for them. Um, in, and they live lives with, that are very tightly controlled. So their hair, their ink, their clothes, it's an area they can have fun with and be, be less controlled and be young and have fun and be reckless. And then, I mean, there's other tribes too. There's like what I call the hired assassins. They dress more severe, ripped jeans, black hoodies, um, label kings. Ronaldo, I think it's safe to say, is the king yep. of the label kings. You know, he sleeps on his private plane under an Hermes blanket. Um, he always has logo belt buckle, and, you know, Louis Vuitton here, mm -hmm. Gucci, Pucci, Fiorucci, you name it. <laughs> and then there's... One more tribe, right? Did you just describe four of them? I think in your book there's five. You, you yeah, five. you're right. Well observed. <laughs> there's another tribe, very smaller group that I call Bohemians and Fohemians because historically footballers, football culture was not welcoming to hippie culture, counterculture, you know, that sort of, um, you know, the hippie stuff. Um, but recently they've grown more beards hair's getting a bit longer especially in the MLS in America like the Portland Timbers they're kind of a crunchy groovy boho kind of sensibility so that's moving a bit in, you know Sanskrit tattoos mm -hmm. that's like a kind of more counterculture bohemian thing it's a small group of players but and and more in America I think all right. And how has the reception been to your book? I know it's only been out for a few days now. Um, have you had any players kind of give you feedback or did you give some of them previews and get some nice feedback from them? Well, getting access to players is virtually impossible. Yeah. And, you know, their lives are very tightly controlled. They're not allowed to just give interviews and blather on. And so I did most of my research um, through reading all their autobiographies, which are absolutely hilarious, especially the ones from the 80s and 90s where nobody was really overseeing what they were writing. <laughs> so like Paul Gascoigne, Gaza's autobiography, Paul Merson, they're fun to read. Frank Worthington from the 70s. Um, to get more of an updated perspective, I interviewed people like Paul Smith. Paul Smith is such a smart guy, Sir Paul Smith. And he is an incredible designer, but he's worked with footballers for decades, um, often designs the British team, works with Jose Mourinho mm -hmm. on Manchester United, the suits that they wear when they arrive, stuff like that. And he has great stories, and he's known a lot of footballers personally. So someone like him, you can sit them down and get incredible stuff, whereas footballers are trained to be... You've seen those post-match interviews. Yep. They don't give away anything because anything they say is pounced upon and dragged through the media. So they they are guarded and with good reason. So, you know, I didn't want to go through a whole hullabaloo and try and interview a footballer and then sit with him for four hours and then him wonder why I only included one quote. Yeah. Those are the kinds of things you have to think about doing a book like What's what you said he had a lot of great stories for you. What's like one fun nugget that you're excited to share with the world through this book? Um, well, Paul Smith is very witty and very funny. And he knew George Best, the great Manchester United player who wore the number seven shirt, same as Beckham, same as Ronaldo. And he 
would help George with his boutiques because George decided he wanted to be a retailer and open boutiques because he was Mr. Groovy. He had a nightclub and a sports car and blah, blah, blah. But he was, you know, retailing's hard. People mm-hmm. always underestimate it. So Paul was helping him re-merchandise the stores and he tells all these funny about funny stories about George's futurist house. He wanted to have like a futuristic Austin Powers swinging groovy house and he built it in North Manchester in like 1968 and there were automatic things TV coming out of the floor and curtains on automatic drapes and and the planes would fly overhead and set off all the automatic mechanisms so suddenly everything would start moving in the house and curtains opening closing and Paul's a great raconteur so I put that story in there all about Georgie Best's house and lots of stuff about dressing teams and the manager suddenly decides he wants everyone to wear white and Paul said this is a catastrophe because the players look great in any color but then you've got the masseur the medics all different shapes and sizes and suddenly they're all in white too Mm -hmm. looking and people would you know stop them and try and buy an ice cream and stuff like that (laughs) that's awesome you mentioned in the book too how soccer players just have seemingly the perfect bodies for fashion too since they're they can just take stuff right off the rack and it fits basically to their form um is that something that's unique to that sport or are you seeing it in other industries as well i think soccer players are uniquely built for fashion they're wiry um they're fit tiny waists you know, shoulders, but not too big. So there's sample size. Yeah. You know, they could all become showroom models or fit models because um, they're just perfect size for fashion. As compared with NFL players who, you know, they like to dress up and they get their ink pulled together, but it's a different look, you know, a lot more beefy. They look spectacular, but it's it's not necessarily that sort of runway model mm. look. Um Basketball players look incredible. Russell Westbrook, I mean, he's a fashion icon. They look great. But they're a bit taller. They wear a different silhouette. They tend to do like an oversized T-shirt, vintage T-shirt with Rick Owens T-shirt maybe with a legging. And it's a good look. But it's different from, I think there's a versatility that soccer players have. They can literally throw on anything like a clothes horse. You mentioned NBA players. So now I want to get your kind of review on those, I guess, dress shorts that these NBA players are wearing now, like LeBron with the suit coat. Is that something you would recommend like a casual person to wear? Well, I always like to see people experiment and try new things. You know, I'm not a thumbs up, thumbs down person. Like uh, anytime anybody's experimenting, I'm happy. I, I, it makes me nervous to be around people who are insecure about their clothes and I recognize that a lot of people do feel insecure. and But basically, no one's keeping score. You should have fun. Well, maybe they are keeping score, and that's the point. The peanut gallery on social media yeah. is keeping score. But fortunately, in soccer, we have players who are, seem completely willing to disregard that, like Jibril Cisse, you know, wore the Givenchy kilt mm-hmm. with the matching top and the mohawk, and he looked fantastic. I love people... Because I'm a child of the 60s, and then I went through glam rock and punk and new romantic and all those outrageous street-style trends that I don't have any ceiling for what people should and shouldn't wear. Like, look at me today. I'm dressed like a toddler. Look, I'm wearing boys. Superman reveal right here. Yes. I like this. (laughs) A boys' Target t-shirt, you know, and little Jokovic number from... (laughs) I'm a bit cash, actually, but my shoes aren't. Check out the shoes. Hello. Oh, wow. Fancy. Gucci. Very Gucci. Yes. <laughs> my shoes aren't as fancy as those. I have some pride Under Armour rainbow shoes. Let's have a look. <laughs> They're great. I want those. Where'd you get them? I just got them in the mail yesterday out of the blue, and so I wore them today. Oh, you're getting graft. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I'm not getting graft. That's think, not fair. I think especially during Pride Month, these companies 
see my social media and they're like super gay let's send them these yeah so. I'm not gay enough to get some pride <laughs> I'll go buy them I'm a retailer I believe in supporting retail I'm going to have a scotch now <laughs> to get over the fact that they didn't send me a pair I'll have it with you it's alive <laughs> it's not scotch actually it's tea speaking of pride it's June pride month mm. how have you celebrated this month or how do you celebrate throughout the year we had a great event at Barney's on the 13th, Pride. And um, um, I guess I've always been out, Mm -hmm. even when it was like not a good idea to be out when, you know, you could get into a lot of trouble and blah, blah, blah. I've never been in. I've always been out. And I, you know, I just was one of those people. I think because I was... When I first realized I was gay, it was illegal to be gay. You could be sent to jail or it was classified as a mental illness. And so I grew up with that. So when it was legalized in 1967, um, I thought, well, you know, the, if you're going to make a political act, the political act is to be out. Mm-hmm. So I was always out, um, you know, so happily so. Yeah, and people like you paved the way for us to be open and free and wear rainbow shoes and sparkly jackets. <laughs> um, I think so, a little bit, yeah. Um, I did my bit uh, just by, I think, virtue of being out. Yeah. Uh, did you um, do anything cool with your partner through, through Pride How Month? How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> um, PG. What did we do on... <laughs> Um, well, I guess for us, like, it's a year-round thing, really, Pride. I didn't – I used to go to the parade every year, and mm-hmm. um, I, I'm happy that it's become such a huge thing and that so many corporations are waving the rainbow flag. That's that's never not a good thing, that the whole of society recognizes this occasion that's can only be a positive thing mm-hmm. i mean there's lots of discussion about what it means and blah 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 but how can it be anything other than positive when so many countries in the world it's still illegal to be gay gay people suffer real oppression so i think we should look to ourselves as a beacon of of stuff that's to be emulated in that regard definitely i take pride month as a way to educate people and teach them it's fun to celebrate like it's fun to hang out with your friends and um, kind of see how far we've come over the years and the decades. But I also think it's one, uh, it's a time to to educate people about all the different types of people in the community, not just like the LGBT, but also the other letters in the acronym that, that's growing, um, LGBTQIA now. Uh, but it's also important to like participate throughout the year in all the activities that are going on that like the Trevor Project does or Glisten or these other organizations. Yeah, that's a good point. Like um, people who are young, just, you know, finding their feet, they probably wouldn't know about the Trevor Project, Mm -hmm. even though it's like 20 years old now, isn't it? That's great. And they learn about it through the marches and the parades. They see the floats, they'll look it up. So I think that's how I see the marches now, more so than like just partying and celebrating, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, gay people always knew how to have a good time. You know, hedonism is part of the the gay experience and that's that's a good thing like mm-hmm. why not have fun life's for living um, but now there's these other layers of political stuff and more meaningful stuff so it's a good combination definitely alright we talked about your new book but I want to know what else is next for you I know there's something big that's happening on television in July yes thank you for asking <laughs> um, I am on a show that stars Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman. And it's a competition show that's not like any other competition show, and it's called Making It. And it starts on July 31st, 10 o'clock, NBC, right after America's Got Talent. And um, we filmed most of it. It's going to be absolutely incredible. Um, It's about crafting I okay. had to learn to say crafting <laughs> as opposed to crafting. Crafting. <laughs> and um, I was hoping to popularize crafting, but it just sounds so weird. Anyway, this is what the show's about. Um, 
people making stuff, and Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman are passionate about it, like put down your phone and make something, make a gift, make something for yourself, um, and the full range of crafts are in this show. You won't believe it, all this incredible stuff these contestants make. And Give me um, an example of one. Well, I signed an NDA. <sighs> you don't have to lose my position on that show. Or kind of something slimmer to one, but not exactly that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, like everything you can conceivably think of. Um, you know, these the contestants are incredibly fabulously assorted. So there's a whole range, a diversity of contestants all making diversity of crafts. All right. Well, I'm excited to check that. I'm sure I'm going to get a few laughs out of uh, your, your co-stars on that show. But this isn't your first rodeo on television. Um, I watched the early seasons of America's Next Top Model, um, Iron Chef America for you, Fashion Hunters, right, on Bravo. Um, what did your work on those shoes teach you to help you prepare for this one? Um, I the, Doing TV, I've done a lot of TV, a lot of VH1, a lot, a lot, but... Um, always in a sort of very fairly minor capacity, and I never took it that seriously. It was fun. Like VH1, I used to say to my colleagues, oh, I'll be back in half an hour, and I'd run around the corner uh, in Midtown and film a whole bunch of those I Love the 80s, 90s, mm-hmm. and then run back to work and never tell anybody what I was doing. Or I didn't think it that wasn't that big a deal. I thought it was fun. And then Tyra, I love her. Tyra Banks got me on America's Next Top Model. Those were really fun. And I... I had so many other things going on that I didn't think, oh, this is my future. I just thought it was fun Mm -hmm. to do. Um, The thing I learned fairly early on, I was on a discussion program and everyone was blathering on and I looked at it later on TV and I was like this, like resting bitch face. And I realized that when you're on TV, you have to look interested and amused and I thought every time I'm on TV, I say in my head, interested and amused. <laughs> um, because otherwise, the minute you look sort of disengaged, you get resting bitch face. Mm-hmm. And it's not, a, it's not the right feel, especially not for a, a life-affirming crafting show. <laughs> so I would say to myself, interested and amused. Like something interesting could happening any moment. And I'm continually entertained by it. I'm going to steal that from you because I feel like my permanent mood is that RBF... Um, I don't know. It's just my face. That's how it looks. But it's like I lift my old... eyebrows up to get excited. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about what's next for you, but I, I'm always interested to know who's next. Like, who's impressing you in your industries that you think people should be aware of and they should be on their radars? Um, well, I'm so happy that Virgil Abloh is designing Louis Vuitton. That's great. Um, obviously, we've worked with him at Barney's for several seasons with Off-White and he's just a lovely person and he's quite humble, very creative, self-critical, special person and it's nice to see someone like that get the top job. I mean, wow, Mm -hmm. good for him. I'm so happy for him and I think, you know, a lot of people, everyone was cheering. It was great. That's awesome. We also have a series here at 1.37 p.m. called My Female Role Model. Uh, you mentioned Tyra earlier. Uh, what did you like about her? Why do you think she's a great mo- role model for young girls and boys out there in the world? Tyra's a great role model. She's just a beacon of positivity. Um, she's Life is good. Grab some of it. Enjoy it. Be it. You're entitled. You should have what you want. She's so great with the Girls Club in Lower Manhattan. I think it's mm-hmm. the Sixth Street Girls Club. I've been to their benefit, met a bunch of the girls. She's she's just a life-affirming, life-enhancing force in the world who believes that if you work hard and you're a nice person, you can achieve something. And I think that's her message, among many others. And, um, no, love her. That's a great message. Be kind, but work hard. Yeah, she's got a great work ethic. Simon, thanks so much for joining us here Uh at Live from the Bar Cart. Thank you for having me. All right, and that was my insightful conversation with Simon Doonan. Be sure to pick up Simon's new book, 
soccer style, the magic and madness. This is Latest Launch, a review of the latest tech, entertainment, and products the 137 team is indulging in. Ignition sequence start. And now it's time for Latest Launch, where we dissect what you should watch, listen to, try, read. Yeah, anything. Reading so, is important. what do you recommend this week for the first <laughs> launch? So, my latest launch is Ant Man and the Wasp. So I am a huge comic book nerd. We've talked about this. Um, I loved Ant-Man 1. I love Paul Rudd. Um, I also love Miguel Pena in the first one, hoping that he uh, has a lot of screen time in this one. But in part two, I'm mostly excited for The Wasp. Uh, Evangeline Lilly, who plays uh, Hope Van Dyne, uh, Ant-Man will finally have a sidekick, and she is a badass. And this is a big moment for Marvel because she is the first Marvel female character to ever be in a title. That's correct. That is correct. I'm proud of you. Look yeah, at you. I'm a nerd too. No, you're a comic book movie. <laughs> Not just all about music. But speaking of music, <laughs> that's my latest lunch because I am all about music, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and this week, Chance the Rapper, who's very charitable throughout his history, announced that he's curating a lineup for the Special Olympics. So the 50th anniversary of the Special Olympics, he's throwing a benefit concert, which mm-hmm. is pretty awesome. Jason Mraz will be performing. Chance himself will be performing. Um, who else? Usher, uh, OAR, a lot of people that have yet to be announced. And the coolest thing is I've actually been to a Special Olympics. Mm-hmm. And just like a regular Olympics, it's very inspiring. And there's always music all around playing. People getting ready with the music. People, you know, pumping themselves up. Or, you know, if they lose, they'll, like, yeah. use music to cope. Well, Chance has very uh, uplifting and upbeat music, and uh, it can really lift the mood and really encourage people, so I'm sure it'll just fit right in there. Yeah, and so this concert's going to be in Chicago, and if you want to head out there on July 21st, you can pick up the tickets at chanceraps.com. All right, so cheers to Chance and the Ant and the Wasp or something? Ant-Man and the Wasp. There we go. Cheers. (laughs) Get it right. So excited you can't be to watch coming that, in here apparently. as a new comic book fan, <laughs> mispronouncing stuff and getting names wrong. Eh, it happens. But I'm learning. <laughs> We're all learning. I'm, I mean, it's I'm, part of this podcast. And we as learned. I said before, I'm very proud and of it. And the last latest launch is Belvedere's Lake Bartizek Vodka. Mm-hmm. You're actually drinking it right now, JJ. Tell me about it. I am. It's so smooth and there's a little uh, smokiness to it, but also like cool. This is actually just one in a pair of the new uh, rye vodkas that Belvedere has mm-hmm. out right now. Came out in June. Yep. We've been drinking them all month. So, yeah, last time we had the Smuggery Forest, and this time I'm drinking the Lake Bartizek. It's a little more subtle and uh, more delicate than the Smuggery Forest. They're both good, but I like how smooth this one is. And what makes it special is that all the ingredients come from one area in northern Poland. Mm-hmm. And you can actually serve it over the rocks, which is how we're drinking it right now. And it's that smooth. Mm-hmm. And, that it also, do it that way. and it also pairs really well with steak. All right. Mm-hmm. You fancy. You know, I get a little fancy sometimes. <laughs> and that's it for latest launch. Yep. Uh, so go see Ant-Man and the Wasp when it comes out. Go buy your tickets to Chance the Rapper's Special Olympics charity concert at chancewraps.com. And get you some Lake Bartizek by Belvedere. This is 1.37 p.m. If you want to own the future, start this minute. Live from the Bar Cart is a Gallery Media production.